What's up and welcome back to Now Nostalgia Pod, giving you your weekly what's going on pop culture. My name is Pat Sheen with my co-host Dave Martin Swagger. Dave, how you doing, man? Doing well, man. Uh, 2020 rolls on. Ariana Grande album coming out this Friday. What a world we live in, man. I, I, I just feel lucky, you know. But we, Dave, we, thought, we thought the content minds would be bone dry at this point. Not true. But Dave, even even more so, this Friday is Mendo. Oh my god! Credits will do just fine, Mendo. <laughs> uh, look at—I mean, this is a big big Friday coming up. We already have some big things to talk about today. You know, we have a bunch of movies, um, a TV show, and uh, a eulogy for a dying platform, or uh, at least a temporarily dead platform. But we wanted to start by talking about some more Marvel news. You know, we're talking about Disney Plus this Friday. And coming to Disney Plus in the near future is Oscar Isaac playing Moon Knight. Dave, this news just dropped today, Monday, 26th. What's your initial reaction to this? To be honest, uh, disappointment. Negativity. Really? Yeah, I don't want Oscar Isaac tied up in this shit. Why not? He was just in Star Wars for so long, barely doing anything else. Mm. I actually don't want him to do franchise stuff. He's such a good actor. I just think of like him and Cumberbatch, and uh, you know, it seems like there's just tons of great actors. They just kind of get tied up, and their schedules are just occupied by the franchise movies because they're long time investments, and they're signed on for sequels and or new seasons in the case of TV. And it's like I feel like their work is limited a little bit. So he's clearly chasing the bag. Obviously, go get it, but like. I don't know, like, he was in three Star Wars movies. He was Apocalypse and X-Men Apocalypse. Like, I feel like Oscar Isaac, he's going to be in Dune, which is a little different. But, like, I don't know, man. Like, I want to see Oscar Isaac, like, go for more Oscars, personally. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I feel like this isn't going to be something that's going to be, like, a 20-episode run. It'll probably be, like, 8 to 10 episode season, something along those lines. And uh, if you're getting someone that high profile, they obviously have some thoughts of weaving him into whatever marvel's crossovers are going to be in some way but uh i don't know but good good for him get the bag i think he likes to balance his like artsy stuff with doing some of these more like get the bag roles and it's kind of who oscar isaac is at this point you know it's funny because when you think about him i think the roles that immediately come to mind uh, probably outside of star wars at this point are things for me at least like lewin davis um, mm-hmm. you know, when he is really excelling in those roles, I think actually think about his character in Drive a lot, even though it's like a, such a bit character. I feel exactly. like he just like really excels in that kind of, of role. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think you're still going to get those. It's probably just going to be, you know, he's picking his spots a little bit more with those artsy ones, and the rest of the time he's like doing the Renner thing. He's like, let me just uh, let me just get this bag and just <laughs> be the side character. Although I guess it's going to be like a, a feature character in this series at least. Yeah, when was the last time Renner was in an exciting movie that wasn't him pretending to shoot a bow, though? It's been uh, a That's what, the problem. The Born movie? <laughs> Born Legacy, yeah. Born Legacy was, what, 2014, I think? Like, that was a long time ago. Are you trying to say Tag was not an exciting 2012, movie my for you, Dave? Yeah. No, ta- Tag's pretty cool. I mean, like, I'm looking at Oscar's thing. He's done some stuff. It's just... I just know, like, these shows, judging on what we know about how, like, Falcon Winter Soldier went and stuff like that, like, these shows take, like, a long time to shoot, even though 
yeah, they're, they're short seasons, but they seem to be about as long a commitment as, as a Marvel movie. So, yeah. I don't know. We'll see. Remains to be seen. It's good Mo- casting, though, of course. Like, he's one yeah. of the best actors we have. So, hopefully he feels compelled and is not just taking, taking the, the cash here. Yeah. Moon, Moon Knight, from everything I can tell, I'm not super familiar with the character, but seems to be a pretty, like, snarky... Uh, quippy character, which I think is a good lane for Oscar Isaac. Cause I think when, when he's a little bit like dry, but just like absurdist in, in his quips, it, it works for him. He kind of has that, that delivery down. Um, but uh, I'm interested just to see as they kind of move into these, these next phases with Marvel, just like how much these TV shows really are going to be the driving force for these things. Like we already have, uh, you know, the movies like Blade and, and, a uh, couple other big ones down the road, but it really seems like they're putting a lot of investment into some of these shows, and it's really going to be such a big piece yeah. of that next phase. It's going to be interesting. I think we're up to seven shows at this point. Jeez, that have been announced, right? So that's a lot. And uh, to, to Isaac's credit, I did forget he's was announced recently to be in that movie about the making of the Godfather, where he's playing Francis yeah. Ford Coppola and Joan Hall's playing Robert Evans, and that has all the makings of like. Oscar, really good shit. So yeah, that's still exciting. Um, well, well, we'll be talking about this for sure as it comes out. But something we won't be talking about much anymore, Dave, is Quibi. Uh, it's time to pay our last respects because Quibi is shutting the doors. Um, you know, they're playing the the song from Trolls Two to make make the staff feel better. That that's actually apparently a real story <laughs> that the the owner told them to listen to that song to feel better that's after right. he laid them all off horrible um but yeah quibi shutting down just could not make the money back uh where, where did quibi go wrong what was the issue yeah right so quibi only went live in april of this year short six months later it's gone um and i i, I think a common refrain that people have been sharing is that we've spent more time talking about in the beginning if quibi would work and what quibi was now, why Quibi didn't work versus things that Quibi actually uh, created. You know, like there's all this talk about the nearly $2 billion in content they spent and how, uh, spent and how much uh, dollars per minute of content was made. And it seemed to be, from a creative perspective, a very lucrative place to, to briefly work, you know, just because Quibi was really just trying to buy up content and, you know get stuff out there and they're just kind of paying for shit carte blanche and chasing scripts and all that but i mean yeah where did it go wrong i mean jeffrey katzenberg would tell you that corona uh, really kind of hurt their business model because they were really uh gearing up for this to be you know the quote quick bites when you're waiting in line at the grocery store or on the subway you just kind of bang out an episode or half an episode of thing because again it's all short form content and that maybe sounds right on its face until you realize, I think, the fatal flaw was that they dismissed read how people work. Like, when you're on the toilet, do you ever feel like, wow, I'm bored. I have no way to entertain myself right now. No, I'm scrolling Twitter constantly. Of course not. You're going to scroll Twitter. You're going to go on Instagram stories. You're going to do anything, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> TikTok, of course, right? Perfect mm-hmm. for this kind of quick engagement stuff. Uh there's plenty. It's very saturated. It's not like Quibi was filling a void. There was no void to be filled. You were just trying to stand out in that void. And 
against bigger brands, more successful things with huge user bases, right? That also most of those happen to be free. Like it, it was just an uphill battle. Anything about how it started, right? It was only on your phones. Mm-hmm. There was no uh, TV app, smart smart device app, even though we were in the pandemic. Like that was a, I think it really held them back. Uh, they partnered with T-Mobile, which also kind of had its leg cut off by the pandemic in terms of getting people in the store and like getting people into Quibi and I mean, we kind of saw the writing on the wall, right? Once the trial period ended out, you saw the app charts, like Quibi just plummeted and it just didn't make any inroads and gain any attention. And, you know, it, unlike something like Peacock or HBO Max, it's not part of a larger corporation. So there's just no safety net. Mm-hmm. So it just, uh, oh, another thing too. I think people kind of forgot about this or maybe didn't realize it because again, a lot of people didn't do anything with Quibi. Initially, you couldn't like take screenshots and like, like share parts of the show, which is, I think the, we all know is the most important part of marketing Ability. these days is the free viral marketing that fans of your content will do for you on social media. That wasn't even mm-hmm. available originally. So it made a lot of mistakes, but ultimately, uh, I think they were just trying to put a, a square peg in a round hole. I guess I, I just come back to, could this idea work if it was attached to something? Yeah more stable you know it's something point, yeah, something like netflix obviously feels like an easy place to you know say download our app which most people probably already have on their phone in some way and then you know if you have 10 minutes you're throwing on this short episode maybe it's even like four or five minutes you know it's kind of like a instagram video rather than a mm-hmm. uh you know 10 11 minute show uh, i guess i'm just trying to think and this is where the uh you know, the, the visionaries really make their money because people like, like myself are not able to conceptualize what that next big thing is. But uh, certainly his attention span is short and this feels like the right direction to go in. But I think you need to kind of have a product people want to be engaging in. You know, it's something like Stranger Things what came out next season and said, like, we're going to have five full-length episodes or hour 20-minute episodes, but then we're going to have these, like, quick side Bite stories, like maybe two that scene, would, two scene yeah. things or something. Maybe that's a way to like kind of build something like this out or test it out. It's it, it's interesting to think about. Yeah, I think that's that, that's the key is that Quibi as an idea has much more potential than Quibi as a brand new platform that no one oh. understands or knows anything about. They're really two different things, and you're biting off way too much trying to do both at the same time. So if it had been kind of grafted onto Netflix and heck. Maybe down the line, Netflix will take this idea anyway. It's not like short form content is somehow trademarked, you know? They could probably try this if they wanted, but it needed to be on some, a platform people already were on and wanted to be on. And Quibi didn't demonstrate any kind of like killer app, any kind of like must see content in short life to even really attract anyone. So it's, uh, just a big, uh, big old waste of money, I guess. But then again, <laughs> creators got paid to make that content. So it's not all bad, I guess. Seems all. You know, investor money and rich people money. So I don't really care about that all that much. But yeah, it's, uh, it's, I believe it's planning to go offline, what, like November 1st, something like that, or pretty soon. Got a week. So it's basically done. Yeah. Uh, shout out to Quibi, I guess. Anyways, let's move on to something a little bit more, uh, substantive, which is the undoing on HBO. Uh, new Nicole Kidman, Hugh Grant. Uh, starred show, mm-hmm. hour long. Uh, Suzanne Beyer, uh, who is the director of Brothers, you might know her from. 
um, helming this, uh, adapted off a 2014 novel by Gene Hanf, Hanf Korowitz, uh, titled Not sure. Hanf, uh, titled You Should Have Known. And I'm intrigued by this first episode. You know, the first episode dropped last night, uh, left a lot of questions. I think it did a lot of setup, really puts the mystery at the heart. Um, it's weird seeing Kidman in this role for two reasons. One, uh, when I see her playing an affluent woman, obviously this is East Coast, I just go uh, right back to the other HBO show that she's in. Uh, Big Little Lies. Big Little Lies. I was going to say Pretty Little Liars, which is not the same thing. <laughs> no, uh, that. I go, I go to Big Little Lies, but then she's also playing a therapist in this show, and she was in a lot of therapy scenes in Big Little Lies, so right. it just feels like... Also, this is a show from David E. Kelly, just right. like Big Little Lies. Yeah, again, it's on HBO. The parallels are so obvious. Yeah, the the tone and, or the style feels similar. Uh, and then she's kind of playing. I wouldn't say like a like the same character, but you know, a character who's a little bit more in control and command. But there's secrets going on. There's this you know air of she doesn't know everything that's happening. There's. Uh, just so many similarities it kind of took me out of it at times but i do feel like the the murder at the center of it the weirdness of the woman who was murdered um and also at the end figuring out that her is her husband right Uh, hugh grant is obviously not being totally straight with her is also a uh, very intriguing part how are you feeling though after this first episode are you in on the show or are you middling yeah so being that it's a six-episode miniseries, thankfully it's not like a ten-episode season. I feel like this this probably will be able to sustain itself again, having not known the novel. But the familiarity, I also don't really mind all that much. It also we're also hanging out with rich people in New York, like Succession. Like there's just a lot of HBO drama touchstones that I I can attach myself to. Mm-hmm. Um, the kids played by Noah Jupe from Ford vs Ferrari and Honey Boy. He's right. obviously a rising young young child star. Um, then you have Donald Sutherland as her father in, in some scenes. And Edgar Ramirez is the lead NYPD detective. So you have a cast you like. And yeah, I mean, it's it's familiar, but I don't I honestly mind that because I know Kidman's going to be good. Like as the mystery unfolds, you know, we're going to see more of that range as her character inevitably is uncomfortable and, and uh, you know goes through a gamut of emotions as she's trying to piece things together and come to grips with the role her husband may or may not have played in uh, the death of someone she knew personally. So, like, it has all those trappings. So, I just want to see uh, how well it sustains itself. But even if it doesn't, I like the cast. I like the setting. That's good enough for me. It's a short, it's a for a miniseries. Yeah. Did you, uh, uh, were you, how did you feel about Edgar Ramirez coming in as Detective Mendoza? Because I was getting some weird vibes off that guy. Yeah. It seemed like he was trying to, like, uh, throw the wink up, you know, raise an eyebrow. <laughs> it was also kind of funny too because his uh, like uh, uh, partner, his uh, colleague detective, has like you know traditional New York City accent. I was like, all right, yeah, this is like the classic like NYPD detective guy I know. I just ask him questions, and he have Edgar Ramirez playing off of him. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, you have to assume that if you're going to cast someone with some stature like Edgar Ramirez, it's not just a nothing detective role, and it's going to be pretty involved so 
yeah, that, that that adds to the mystery, right? And especially after we we just talked about him in Wasp Network, he seems yeah. to have a you know a bit of a rising star. Uh, I'm interested to see how he kind of plays out in all this. Um, you know, M- Matilda the angelus was definitely the the biggest surprise out of all this for me it it feels like she really came in and dominated all the scenes she was in um now obviously her character has a really weird presence about her you know she's standing over nicole kidman completely naked um she's whipping her tit out to breastfeed it's there's a lot going on with for her and a lot that's going to draw you to that character in general um but i really felt like she had this like gravity to her, like that scene where they're at that dinner party and Nicole, they're all kind of sitting around talking about her from a distance. Then Nicole Kimmy keeps glancing over and like the way that she's just staring at her from across the room really delivered such like a strange, but like capturing feeling. It was, uh, it really struck me just how much she kind of came in and, and stole some of those scenes, uh, playing opposite some, some more experience and talent. And definitely. Definitely. Yeah, I'm curious to see if there's more flashback scenes and we get more of her, or if it's really just one and done. She, she's just gone because she's dead, you know. Because uh, yeah, it was it was definitely a unique presence, and I like kind of how it played off of the clicky social cir- circle that Kidman's character is a part of. Another similarity to Big Little Lies. So mm-hmm. definitely has a lot of those ingredients that even if they're familiar, they're uh, still kind of easy to like if the execution is good. So looking forward to the rest of it. Just as we wrap up. Uh, Quick thoughts on Hugh Grant, well, especially where he's at in his career right now. Yeah, I mean, he's not so. I haven't seen a lot of his stuff. Like, what well, he made his name in like rom coms like back in the day, right? Yeah. Like, and I know people really love him in the Paddington movies of late. So yeah, he was a good villain in the second one for sure. Yeah. So it seems like he's out, kind of had like a late career revival, in yeah. in a sense similar to Kidman. You know, make a transition in your career and then be pretty successful at doing kind of the same stuff all the time, but still works yeah just kind of looking through his uh his recent movies and uh uh and uh, television appearances he's in a 2018 three episode or he's in three episodes of a show called a very english scandal yep that was a miniseries um he's in the undoing he's in the paddington movies uh he was in the man from uncle seems like he's making some interesting choices and he's in the gentleman obviously we saw him as fletcher which was an <laughs> interesting right. role yeah he it was really like, extra in that yeah it feels like he's he's kind of trying to find this like more serious kind of moving away from the rom-coms i guess man from uncle isn't super serious but kind of trying to find these more serious dramatic roles where he gets to kind of uh, shine in flashes and not to carry it which i think is probably the right move for him yeah. he's an he's an interesting guy because he really feels like early 2000s had such a huge star and then like what? What's that role for a strictly like rom com type character after they're no longer able to play that role? It's fascinating. Um, anyways, let's move on to uh, some movies. We'll start with Kajillionaire, the Miranda July movie hit VOD recently, um, starring Evan Rachel Wood, um, uh, Richard Jenkins, uh, Gina Rodriguez, mm-hmm. a lot of a lot of big name people, at least at the top bill. I mean, it's a pretty small movie in terms of character. Um, but Dave, I had no no idea this movie was coming out, and it was just I was simply just delighted by it. Uh, I thought it was weird 
and uh, probably one of the most uh, surprising movies and that I would never have expected myself to like usually, but I think where it really boils down to is the Evan Rachel Wood, Gina Rodriguez chemistry is just off the charts and really carries this movie. Um, Kajillionaire, good, bad, in between. Yeah, I liked it. It's uh, unique. And I haven't seen Miranda July's other movies, but it seems to be kind of in a similar vein. This is her first movie in is it nine years. Well-known in the indie scene and Kajillionaire again. Sundance movie later picked up by Focus. And another movie that I just knew people liked it out of Sundance. Didn't really know much about it. I just knew that Evan Rachel Wood had like long hair because I saw the promo. Like, I didn't really know anything about it. And... It's uh, it's unique. It's its own thing. It, it, it's funny. It's perplexing. It's strange. It's a lot of stuff. But I think it's pretty entertaining and pretty easy to watch the whole time. Mm-hmm. And Gina Rodriguez in particular was a really big surprise to me. Mm-hmm. I think it's really well cast. Um, uh, you know, like early on, you have Divine Joy Randolph briefly pop up as that like masseuse character, right? And when I saw Gina Rodriguez pop up when they meet her on the plane, I'm like okay, another like you know smart cameo. I didn't expect her to be in the rest of the movie, but I really like that presence. And yeah, it, it's just it's just it's just kind of a interesting, whimsical movie. Kind of a little hard to pin down, I guess, because I, I I have questions about like Evan Rachel Wood's old Dolio character, like another again just kind of unique presence. But uh, I liked it. Yeah. Um... Odolio, uh, old Dolio in the movie is a really, um, tragic character, in my opinion. Um, really highlights the effect that uh, lack of nurture and care from parents has on your upbringing, your development. And I, I think I liked, um, I, I really liked the, like, the final scene. I guess for those who haven't seen it, maybe this will spoil a bit, but when they're like, returning the gifts and they find out how much it was that it was a third of, of that, that group that it was more a story about like people are who they are and it's about finding who you are um, in a sense, or at least that's kind of was my takeaway was mm-hmm. you can't, you can't necessarily make people have a different nature, but that doesn't mean that you need to like bend your own to fit theirs. I thought it was a really powerful message. And I have to say like the scenes when, Evan Rachel Wood was just like begging her parents to show her any sort of affection or care. It was really heartbreaking for me. I thought Evan Rachel Wood, who, you know, most recently we've seen in Westworld and plays a bit, you know, she plays a robot. So her character is a bit mechanic. She was like basically the Terminator in this most recent season, yeah. uh, playing very flat a lot of the time, seeing her use that emotional range while also kind of reverting back to this like stone the Stonewall character in a sense yeah. was I thought really well done. The only scene, and I guess I wanted to ask you, how did you feel about the scene where they have the big earthquake and they think it's it's the big one and then they kind of go off into space. It's all black. How did you yeah. feel about that? I mean, it's weird. Yeah. It didn't surprise me. It kind of fit what was going on. I had no problem with it. Um, I think my favorite scene is probably when they're the whole crew is at that uh, dying old man's house. I think that was probably the most effective in terms of like their cons and how the gears turn in some of their heads about like emotionally, like what they're doing and stuff like that. But I, I, I did struggle a little bit with uh, Wood's performance just because 
I really didn't, I wasn't sure what she was doing with her voice. Like, it's kind of this, like, lower register, non-emotive voice. And to me, it kind of made Odolio seem more grating than, than she should have been because she is, like, a tragic character. But to me, I was just kind of annoyed by some of her tics at times. Like, it just, it just didn't seem like a presence I wanted to be around. And again, you know, you know why that was, but. It's a peculiar performance, especially once later on in the movie when she has a revelation, I guess, an epiphany and starts becoming more emotive and she's all happy in that convenience store. And it's like, still don't know what this voice is doing, but it's a quirky movie. I think, I think it's pretty cool. Yeah. You know, uh, Richard, uh, there's some, definitely some funny moments. Um, you know, I, I think, uh, every time, uh, divine joy kind of comes back in uh i really found myself just like giggling because she always just is playing such like an awkward like um no like this is not (laughs) how people interact kind of way like that straight man in a sense um i thought richard jenkins was great he's pretty much always uh solid in whatever movie he's in um i didn't really care for the mom too much um i i kind of thought i mean and you know what that might have actually been kind of the point deborah winger i thought acted fine but really just found myself dying for that mom to show just to show old, old dolio any sort of affection it was really aggravating right. to me as a bleeding heart i guess um but yeah that that final scene where woods and rodriguez you know are like like kind of like crackling with tension sexual t- tension between each other i just thought was phenomenal and um did not see that kind of coming when they first met but you know, as the movie developed and they kind of grew closer, that like will they won't they really surprised me with how strong it kind of came on. Yeah, I agree. Um, because you're introduced to the characters early on, and they're you know they're like grifters, they're just low low rent con men. Mm-hmm. Like I, I think the movie has a lot to uh, sets itself out to uh, get you on its side because everyone's unlikable from the jump. But uh, July does a really good job with making Old Dolia much more nuanced and well-rounded as a presence. Mm-hmm. And again, I think Gina Rodriguez's presence uh, really stood out. I, I, definitely my favorite role she's had, to be honest. Like I didn't watch Jane the Virgin, but she hasn't really wowed me in the, her much of her movies stuff, apart from I guess Annihilation. But um, re- re- I thought she was really great in this. And then there's just there's just some funny stuff too in this, right? Like the over the top acrobatics Dolio does to avoid cameras, and the fact that they're living in an office where the bubble factory literally suds their walls. Like there's some there's some ridiculous ass shit in this movie too. So the, the, the bubble bubble factory owner uh, kind of you know being such a weeping willow in, in a sense, of yeah, like bleeding heart to them while having to like stand up. I thought was a really five hundred. It's very fair. Yeah. <laughs> Which, yes, it is. Right? Yeah, especially for LA. Um, any last thoughts before we move on? Uh, yeah, no. I mean, this. Check it out. Check it out. VOD. VOD. That's that's the way we watch movies now because of uh, we're still dealing with COVID. Anyways, moving on to another way that we're watching, which is on streaming. That's Witches on HBO. Mm-hmm. Um, from Roald Dahl. <laughs> okay. Um, <laughs> And it's not really from him. It's based off his yeah, book. Based off his, his <laughs> book, right? So based off the Roald Dahl story, which is um, from Robert Zemeckis. 
yeah so zemeckis very famous accomplished act uh actor director yeah. um you know you know him from a, a number of very famous movies uh what's gump um, yeah back to the future back to the yes roger there rabbit so you're kind of going into this thinking this is a robert zemeckis movie probably expecting it to be pretty good well dave did not leave this movie feeling like it was really good. Entertaining, perhaps, yeah. at times. But just a lot that I didn't like. Did you feel the same way? Yeah. It's yeah. for kids, too. Right. Yeah. It, it's pretty over, overtly juvenile, both for its sentiments and who is trying to entertain. But also, to me, just like kind of the, the filmmaking, the, the structure of it all. Like, the first 15 minutes of the movie is nonstop narration exposition from chris rock and octavia spencer right like mm-hmm. it it's just pretty simple the, the whole premise i hadn't seen the uh original adaptation with uh angelica houston playing the grand high witch i know it's a bit of a cult classics on netflix right now um this time around you know there's been some things changed like you know setting this back in like 60s with a you know with black leads felt like there was more meat left on that bone i think obviously but they didn't really go down that road at all maybe because they're trying to entertain kids i don't know but i think the best part is probably anne hathaway as the grand high witch this time around just because it's really out there and she's just going for it and Mm -hmm. having fun so that was the entertaining part to me but a lot of times i was like wow there's like a distracting amount of unnecessary cgi in this like did you really need to animate that mouse in the little boy's pocket, uh, like chest pocket? Like, no, I don't think you did. Like, that was that seemed like a strange use of funds to me. I don't know, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it, it's a low stakes kids movie at the end of the day. It's kind of like Enola Holmes, I guess, you know. Yeah, but Enola Holmes, I felt like at least there was like a mystery at the heart of it. It was kind of like compelling to like follow that along, and the action scenes were definitely, I think, more entertaining than this. Hathaway is is going for it for sure uh not sure what that accent is supposed to be um kind of comes and goes uh throughout the cgi on her face um really unpleasant to look at which uh, is obviously effective because that's what they're trying to do but like the the mouth that's too big for the human form um okay uh spooky did the part but you know i kind of just felt like this was uh (laughs) It's going to sound so so weird when I say it, but it was almost like a Halloween episode of Everybody Hates Chris, you know, the Chris Rock uh, television show, because yeah, it was sure. the same exact setup where it's him, mm-hmm. you know, narrating as a older adult talking about his childhood. And that's kind of what happens this whole time. And there is not a lack of talent in this movie. You know, you have Anne Hathaway, Stanley Tucci, Octavia Spencer, um, Chris Rock obviously narrating. Kristen Chenoweth is a, the voice of um, the little mm-hmm. mousy Daisy. Um, you know, there's there's some some talent there. Equally impressive. The screenplay was worked on by Kenya Barris and Guillermo del Toro, in addition to Robert Zemeckis. And Kenya Barris, obviously one of the most uh, accomplished mm-hmm. TV producers going at the moment, uh, really thought he could have brought more to the whole flip because the original uh, movie and book, it's not about black kids in the South. It's in England, right? Like mm-hmm. yet 
they didn't actually do anything with that. Like it, it almost was just like performative, I guess. I don't know. Like so, yeah. I mean, I it, it's tough. It's tough to recommend much of it, really. And I wasn't familiar with the Roald Dahl story, but you know, all the Roald Dahl stuff for the most part's pretty well liked, or at least pretty popular, right? At least again in the realm of entertaining children. So then again, you look at Robert Zemeckis's run since the 2000s, it's mainly misses TBH. Yeah. You know, there, there's some gems once in a while, but this is, uh, I don't know, seems, uh, seems a little misbegotten to me. And, and also you think about it, like Del Toro, Zemeckis, Kenny Barris, all those people working on a screenplay. Wow. That many t- passes on it for most talented people. Would have thought it'd been better, but then again, that's also probably just a sign that it uh, wasn't coming together all that much, and they need need help with it. Yeah, it's. Uh, I think like the parts I would say were fairly well done is maybe the scene where Anne Hathaway is like in, uh, you know, has like the witch convention or whatever. Yeah, like the coven. she's. And and you know what? That's really just Anne Hathaway showing out and like being absurd and ridiculous. But yeah. it, you know, it's it's interesting. Uh, I but guess, like, in, but like in that scene, right? It's like Chris rocks, up. and then at that moment, I realized I had to get out of there because those witches were witches, and I and they wanted they're going to eat me. Go! Yeah. It's like you don't have to name uh, that. You can just write the movie better and just have the action happen. Yeah, and it, I got, it, it was just pretty juvenile all around. And I gotta say, the uh, the like chubby kid character, obviously there for comedic relief, but I did not like him at all. I found him incredibly grating, loop looking ass. Yeah, very frustrating. Just that whole character did not work for me. Um, you know, I'm just looking here at Zemeckis's filmography when was the last movie you'd say was pretty good i guess flight that's that's what i would go with yeah flight, yeah. which is 2012 right and then before that um casa like it's a lot of it's a lot of like high profile films right like yeah. a lot of times they didn't go well allied you know the brad pitt mm-hmm. movie uh welcome to marlin notorious flop with, <laughs> with uh Carell, right like it's not for a lack of trying it just seems to be uh you know, I I get I guess the walk, the JGL tight rock tight rope movie. I thought I think that was like decent. Yeah, but the the documentary was better. You know, that's yeah, like, a good point. Um, it, well, we have an untitled Pinocchio live action adaptation to be looking forward to. Yeah, so. that that's in uh, development. How though? Yeah, yeah. Del Toro, Del Toro is also involved with that. Oh boy. At one point. Anyways, uh, well, we're gonna go from witches. A uh, movie that, you know, I guess is a children's movie, entertaining, fun, to a movie that I don't know if it needed to even be made. Uh, Rebecca, the 2020 remake of the 1940 classic by the same name from Alfred Hitchcock. Ever mm-hmm. heard of him? Uh, his only <laughs> best picture winning uh, film, which is yeah. kind of crazy to say, um, yeah. especially because it's probably not the first film people think about when they think Hitchcock. Yeah, I, I would say it's it's a popular film, but definitely not close to his most well regarded, even though it's well regarded, right? Like what do you think of Psycho North, by Northwest, Psycho, yeah. Vertigo. Like there's some obvious ones that are just kind of at a different level than this. Is he but, rear window as well? I think so, right? Yeah. 
So uh, this this also notably was like contract work for Hitchcock, and it's an adaptation of a novel. So you know, I think it's he still does a lot of cool stuff. Me and you both watched that Hitchcock one for the first time recently. I was surprised to see it wasn't on HBO Max like so many other Golden Age Hollywood movies. But uh, thankfully, it's. Uh, available on YouTube in full. You don't have to like watch like 30 clips. You have to, it's just all there because I guess the rights in this movie maybe are in limbo. Who knows? But I was, I was happy to have that experience and gotta say, going into a new remake, uh, you know, which is actually not the, the o- only remake. There was a 97 miniseries as well, but going into this 2020 remake from Ben Wheatley so soon after seeing the Hitchcock version. Did not do the remake any favors. Let's put it put it bluntly. This uh, this one was a tough hang. Yeah, you know, I, I guess we'll start. Like, we love Army Hammer. We stand for him. You know, dancing and call me by your name. Yeah. We, we 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 like most of the things Social he's done network. recently. Yep. Sorry to bother you. Even he has had moments, but he's no Lawrence Olivier. Oh. Uh, not yeah. as and an I, actor, but. I think he was, I think, honestly, really disappointing in this because on, on his face, Army Hammer, the reason he had a career to start with was because he's a very conventionally handsome man. Mm-hmm. And yet he cannot actually convey it all that well in this Rebecca movie. Like no. He's cold. His line line deliveries are almost understated. Like he kind of like fumbles lines at times. When he's angry, it does not come across that well. Like you think of like the ballroom scene, like Olivier's mm-hmm. like face in that moment is so much more compelling than yep. Hammer's just kind of basic scowl. Like he, he did not deliver at all as a uh, uh, Maxim Maximilian. Yeah, you know it's. Uh, I I think the part that I was most surprised at right because. Um, it feels like he, like you said, he's kind of made to be to be in this role in a sense. Like, I I don't really love the character of Maximilian. You know, he's kind of like this brooding, almost like childish in ways. The way he like deals with his anger type, yeah, spoiled he's millionaire, old money elite, inherited right. wealth, all that stuff. Very controlling, um, and and that that's a hard role to like until like you know you kind of find out the reason he's so secretive and so you know playing things so close to the vest is uh you know he actually did end up killing his wife but like kind of gets off in a way mm-hmm. by like you know the the coroner report uh but like you said he should have crushed this and it just felt listless in a lot of ways almost like he didn't even like care to be there it's hard to follow Lawrence olivier but like need a little bit more from you Lily James, I also found to be just like not even close to Joan Fontaine's. Oh, no way. Uh, Mr. Winter, it just kind of like, where was like the, where was like the inspiration for this? Like, why even do this? This is kind of where I kept coming back to. No one seemed into it. And, and that's what's funny too, is when you watch the opening movie, it's presenting itself as a adaptation of the novel, right. which it is. So it was, t- but, you inherently uh, are in the shadow of Hitchcock when you try and do this. You can look at the history of uh, Hitchcock adaptations and follow-ups. It, it is it is it is not uh, go go well for for the imitators, right? Look no further right. than Gus Van Zandt. But like in this case, like you have Lily James, who has had a solid career, but probably an unremarkable one given 
I think the fame she's built up. Mm-hmm. And in this case, I don't think the fear and uneasiness with the mystery of everything at Manderley is conveyed well at all. I think my favorite part about the whole movie, honestly, was everything in Monaco and Monte Carlo, mm-hmm. yeah. just because the visuals stood out more. Like you, If you watch this and you contrast it with Hitchcock version, obviously this is one's in color, but also the ability just to, you know, construct construct scenes has evolved right so like you actually are watching them drive the car this time on real roads on the french riviera versus the old timey stuff which is obviously hilarious right and like there's actually uh, some connective tissue scenes right like we watch them like uh pg rated have sex on the beach right Uh like there's a few more conversations between them like it seems like they're trying to actually like build this relationship more build up and yet it doesn't seem to really work that much. Like, you have Anne Dowd as um, uh, what's her name, the the person that yeah uh, she's serving um, in the beginning, the old woman. Yeah, uh, crap, <laughs> somehow even more grating and like irredeemable than the original version of the character from Hitchcock, uh, which is hilarious. Uh, notably, I was actually looking it up for the mi- so the miniseries. You have Charles Dance as Maxim. You have uh, Faye Dunaway. As the uh, old lady, and you have Diana Rake, uh, aka Lana Tyrell, hmm. as a uh, Mrs. Danvers. Really bad. <laughs> yeah, and I guess that's the thing is I do feel like the Hitchcock movie really thrives because uh, Mrs. Danvers in that movie is just so Anderson. creepy. Like she has such a brooding, uh, dark presence around her, and you know Kristen Scott Thomas, I thought deliver that okay and i actually like think if any of the any of these actors really like mm-hmm. gave it their all she's the one i would point to um but it's just hard to live up to yeah. that like creepiness that is comes in you know that's also hitchcock like the lighting the that scene where she's like trying to convince uh mrs de winter to like jump off and kill herself it's yes. so well done and so effective and in this one, it just kind of was like, uh, I don't know. I'm not really buying it. So yeah. Something is just missing there. Yeah, I would say Kristen Scott Thomas definitely like did the best at trying to make it her own version of the character. Mm-hmm. And part of that, I think, is the way this movie, the screenplay works, right? She was way more obvious, actually, in her uh, poor intentions. Mm-hmm. In, in Hitchcock version, Anderson is uh, much harder to pin down. Yeah. Also, you know, due to like Hayes Code stuff, the lesbian subtext that's more present mm-hmm. in the novel is very, very faint in the Hitchcock version. And in this one, I think that's almost a missed opportunity. I still didn't find it very effective, even though they had more uh, runway to actually try and do stuff with that. Um, yeah. What did you think about like the the scene where Danvers jumps into the ocean? You know, in in the book, in, in the Hitchcock version, it hurt. Danvers' fate in general is pretty ambiguous. You think she got killed by the fire in the movie, but not really clear. But in this one, you, she has another final talk with the second Mrs. De Winter, and then she jumps off into the ocean. It's like, oh, interesting. Really kind of putting the nail on the head with that one. Yeah, I think what I, I think what I like about the ending in the Hitchcock one is 
So even though you're saying it's a little bit ambiguous, I mean, she's she's in that fire, and you yeah. you see something fall on her, and it says Rebecca, and it's on fire. Yeah. So you're pretty certain she's going to die, although I guess you don't see her die, so that the rule of movies, she, <laughs> you know, maybe she'll be in the sequel. But um, in this one, it just feels like unnecessarily on the nose. But I think, like you said, that kind of goes back to the shortfalls of the script in general and the screenplay, because if you're telling the story the way that you need to, you can have something like Mrs. Uh, you know, Mrs. Danvers running around uh, as the building's on fire, then it falls on her, and you're just kind of like, okay, like what is this trying to say? How how do I make sense of the fact that she did this? Whereas in this, it's like spelling it out for you. It's pretty much like telling you like, yep, I was in love with Rebecca and I can't let her death just go. Like I need to destroy everything that is attached to it. It's just kind of like, mm-hmm. tell not, you know, show don't, don't tell all the time. And uh, if there's one scene that I think encapsulates the failure of this movie and why the other one works so well, it's probably how you juxtapose those endings together. Sure. Uh, I don't know. Really, really disappointing overall. Yeah, definitely. And like the way this movie was set up too, was going to like kind of kickstart Netflix's, you know, awards run where they're going to start dropping all their high profile prestige films every few weeks throughout the end of the year. And uh, I was definitely expecting uh, good things, but didn't get there. You know, I think visually, you know, I think there's some cool moments like when like the ship flare happens and you know that oh, they found the, the wreckage and the bodies can be discovered. Now that I looked actually really cool. There's some nice uses of like CGI to make Manderly look pretty uh, imposing and impressive. But ultimately, I, a lot of times I was just wanting it more like there's that moment where there's that dream sequence where uh, Lily James is like freaking out like the vines are all over her in the bed. I think if you if you're gonna remake something in the shadow of Hitchcock, why don't you go for that and like make it like really psychological? Yeah, now, like you briefly have that moment when there's like the it flashes red and everyone's dancing around her and like you know she, then mentally she's like going through everything. Like again, lots of potential and like Ben Wheatley, a director who really made a name for himself as an intriguing indie filmmaker, beginning of the decade. Um, again, just delivering something pretty uninspired, which is disappointing because his next movie is going to be Tomb Raider 2 with Alicia Vikander. So it's like, uh, he's definitely chasing the bag a little bit with this one. Um, honestly, though, I think, you, you know, you know, probably is the closest thing to a modern day Rebecca. I've seen people say this. It's uh, Paul Thomas Anderson's Phantom Thread. Wow. Yeah, yeah that's... I didn't make that connection myself, but I think that makes a lot of sense. That makes a lot of sense. And that movie is so much more well done. Uh, Not even close. Jeez. Uh, well, Rebecca, you can watch the Hitchcock Rebecca for free on yep. YouTube. The whole thing is there. Do that. Skip the Netflix one unless you uh, need to fall asleep. Let's go to Borat to wrap this up. And I'm going to, Dave, I'm going to give you the, the full name here. Are you ready for it? Yeah. Borat, subsequent movie film, delivery of prodigious bride to American regime for make benefit once glorious nation of Kazakhstan. Kazakhstan. Yeah. (laughs) How Dave said it. Um, Pronunciation, not my strong suit. So, I mean, we all know Borat. This was directed by Jason Walliner, but really it's a Sasha Baron Cohen film. 
And uh, character Borat created way back with the Ali G show. Um, did you did you watch that growing up, the Ali G show? No, I've seen a clip or two, but I, I was pretty much unfamiliar with Baron Cohen in general until Borat came out in 06. It's funny because I really loved Ali G. Uh, I used to watch, I didn't like follow it like episode to episode, but we would legally download it. I would watch it. It was great. Um, but I never really like, well, I found myself gravitating towards Borat as a character. So when he kind of blew up, I was kind of like, okay, like Big Bruno guy, not even close to being a Bruno guy. <laughs> uh, LEG though for, for like, Booyakasha. um, Borat blew up back. Uh, when did the first movie drop? 2006? 06. Yeah. 06. Notably so, nominated for best adapted screenplay at the Oscars. Insane. And, Sasha Baron Cohen since has just been uh, like a rocket ship. You know, like we were talking last week during the trial of the Chicago seven, he is revered, I think in comedy circles as not only this great, like mockumentary maker and kind of stunt, uh, setup guy, but he's showing he has real acting chops, you know, rumored, uh, over the last 10 years to be attached to a Freddie Mercury. Could have been. Yeah, ended up not being part of that. And you can listen to our review on Bohemian Rhapsody. But Borat subsequent movie film coming out and being this uh really surprising movie because it wasn't just this like I, I think what made this movie work for me was was that it wasn't just this like gotcha mockumentary film. It was it had a real heart to it at the center of like uh father daughter relationships mm, sure. and um even though it's played through this absurdist uh prism of borat and you know how he kind of mocks this like middle eastern um yeah uh, what what people what americans think of middle eastern countries um and, and society i think where it kind of ends up is a real like story about fathers loving their daughters and valuing them and sacrificing for them. It's pretty interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, what was your takeaway from the movie? Yeah. I mean, when we heard about it, we heard Amazon acquired it. I was like, wow, kind of secret Borat sequel made 14 years later, more or less under the radar. There were some reports about Baron Cohen doing stuff uh, in the summer, but no one, there was no like, I think official like connecting of those dots until quite recently. And that's pretty cool because uh, it's hard to pull off. And, you know, watching the movie and seeing how Baron Cohen's able to, like, kind of do this stuff all over again by kind of simply just changing what Borat's wearing so he's not as uh, recognizable. Uh, man, I mean, it, on one hand, it, 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 it's simple in its effectiveness in showing how, uh, you know, the flaws of American society and the, you know, base level bigotry and hypocrisy that's rampant and, how a lot of people here conduct themselves, right? And the movie felt really unique, but necessary in 06. And then somehow feels the same way in 2020, despite we're living in a much uh, crazier world where you don't think something like this would be nearly as effective, especially the second time around. But, you know, as we move into like COVID and you get really pointed about the Trump administration in this movie, I was surprised with still how effective a lot of stuff is. Uh, again, like the first movie, it's going to have controversial moments. Uh, Borat as a character is uh, 
definitely not not PC. There's a lot of stuff, uh, you know, and under the guise of satire, you know, and that that that's how it's presented. But you are just going to piss some people off, right? There's some stuff with Jews once again that is a uh, definitely on the line, if not crossing it, right? And, yeah, it crosses it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you're literally parroting about anti-Semitism, and again, like the point is rightly, like, oh, well, I was told the Holocaust. Uh, isn't real because of Facebook. So darn, because like the joke in the first movie was that his country was really proud of uh, all of the Kazakhs' uh, role in the Holocaust, right? And it's like, on one hand, it, it's a kind of a ingenious way to like wrap this thing around, but at the same time, you're still parenting like Holocaust denial, even in a joking fashion. I think, that, and that's the thing with most people's problem would be, right? Is that even if you're like jokingly and over the toply presenting these ridiculous views, like mm-hmm. whether in this one COVID denialism stuff like that, right? right. Uh, Hillary Clinton is is a, is a vampire stuff like that, right? Yeah. You're still kind of like giving credence to the to the the stuff the way you're presenting it, and even jokingly your character, but like still kind of taking it seriously. So I understand why people wouldn't like it, but still a lot of funny stuff, and and for me it's in. I, I was less invested in like the father daughter relationship as like an actual plot mechanic for like the, the movie of it all, but just kind of scene to scene, gag to gag. You know, some work better than others, but that that's kind of where I was just most entertained. And yeah, the CPAC scene in particular, which did get news coverage at the time, is some really hilarious stuff. I mean, geez, when he, in the beginning when he literally walks in in a clan robe, I'm like, oh my god, yeah. this is. Like it's so on the nose, right? Because like closest thing we have to a modern day clan rally, I guess. But <laughs> really um, doing that, and then like I, at first I thought it was like selectively edited, right? When he was like, uh, you know, uh, yelling out to Pence, and then you see Pence look over. I'm like, oh well, maybe Pence was reacting to something else. This is something happened. Then I remember, oh wait, no, uh, Cohen literally went there. Yeah. <laughs> like waited. In, apparently, he told the New York Times he waited in the bathroom for hours until it was time. Yeah, was right five to- hours crazy good stuff yeah no the dedication to the bit is really funny i i the bit that i found probably most funny and i i didn't find research on this so i i'm sure maybe i could if i looked dug a little harder i could but when he's kind of uh quarantining with yeah. these right-wing guys you and on guys oh my god all of that was so hilarious and uh i just found it to be such a um a, a really funny like microcosm of like this like quarantine period when everybody's like around like doing all this ridiculous stuff but also like highlighting the QAnon absurdity and BS mm-hmm. and that leading to the scene where he's singing like we're gonna uh, yeah what, what did he keep saying oh uh, the Wuhan flu yeah and, uh, we're gonna give them blame the and Obama and like it, it was actually kind Everybody. of I was kind of impressed with the tune of the the song yeah really offensive <laughs> racist song but like it Absolutely. was actually like a well constructed like good comedic song I guess um, yeah and um, you know it it just was such a great like run in the middle of the film um, and you know just to circle back there is some controversy obviously the anti semitism stuff is across the line in general but there's some back and forth between Sasha Baron Cohen's camp um, and the survivor who he talks to in yep. the temple where uh, the this uh, the movie's dedicated to her. I'm 
forgetting her name. I'll look it up mm-hmm. as you're talking next. Holocaust survivor. Yeah. yeah, and she she gives a wonderful talk with him and is very loving and caring. Uh, supposedly, she died after the movie, and her family is claiming she did not know the intention of how the movie is being used. And Baron Cohen saying that she was aware of it. They, she was the only person that he told ahead of time. Mm-hmm. Um, you know the bit he was doing because he didn't want to offend her. Being a survivor, right. it's a very like touchy thing, but it kind of goes down to like that. These are real people who, yeah. um, pretty much everybody in this movie was not an actor. Um, like yeah. the the scene where they they do the dance at the the ball down in Georgia, the oh, uh, it's absolutely absurd. But they actually like sent out a, a online survey, and you had to be able to know who Mike Huckabee was, but not Will Ferrell or Sasha Baron Cohen, right? So they like were specifically picking people right. who they could do, but still like these are people who are real people experiencing yeah. these absurd things happening. I mean, this came up with the original movie too, but uh, Baron Cohen is a Jewish man. And yet, mm-hmm. you know, he's still really taking it as far yeah. as he can. And I don't know. I feel like that's up for Jewish people to decide at the end of the day, but their, their opinion matters more than mine on it. But you know, and it seems like Kazakhstan, the real Kazakhstan has kind of made their peace with Borat after initially really not liking what it was, how it went down. Original movie, of course, banned throughout just about all of the Arab world at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, like it's notable, right? Cause Baron Cohen, uh, as Borat, he doesn't speak Kazakh at all. He's speaking like Hebrew and I think mm-hmm. Polish, Polish when he's yeah. talking. And his village scenes are not actually shot in Kazakhstan. They're no. shot in Romania. So it's this big old, a mismatch of things, which again kind of fits with what he's going for because to most Americans, it's all a mismatch of things they don't know the difference between anyway, right? Yeah. So, I, uh, you know, again, like in, in, in Trump's America in 2020, I was actually still surprised with how effective like a lot of the societal comment can be because, mm-hmm. you know, we talked about this with stuff like V or eventually like what the old, old way of lampooning stuff isn't as effective when reality is. Lampooning itself. Already lampooning what we previously expected yeah. convention to be, right? Yeah. But I, I was impressed with how successful subsequent movie film was, ultimately. Yeah, I, I agree. I thought this was great success um, <laughs> for Borat. But I I, uh, I guess I wanted to ask, this is where most of the attention for the movie has been by those who haven't seen it and just kind of like oh, yeah. the Twitter talking head in general. Thoughts on the Broody scene? Uh, were you shocked by it? Did it yeah. Well, here's the thing, right? You can, you can, I think Baron Cohen put it well. He's like, hey, you know what? You can watch the scene and make up your own mind. Whether he's adjusting his, his just his mic. He's tucking it in. Or t- like, taking out his dick. You know, who, who's to say, right? I don't know. But you know what I did notice? He was really touchy-feely mm-hmm. with uh, the actor playing his daughter. You know? Yeah. He was, uh, you know, kind of crossing the line and Baron Cohen kind of coming in to make sure it didn't actually go any farther because he's still a, a real human at the end of the day and that's not what the plan was right so i think i think what they were, they were going for is what they got right it was like you're just gonna lampoon giuliani who's falling for their shit and their, mm-hmm. and their pretense and the fact that he was couldn't help himself from being a creep creepy old man uh that's just the benefit of the movie at the end of the day and considering no harm ultimately was done uh, I think it's pretty good. It's hilarious to see everyone else chime in about it. And you have like Trump saying all this shit about Baron Cohen. He's like, Hey bro, thanks for the publicity. Yeah. You know, so I don't know, make up your mind, but I mean, 
he doesn't Giuliani does not come across well in the scene, whether you think anything happened or not. Yeah. No, I, I agree. Uh, Maria B- Bakalova is, plays Tutar, the daughter. She, I thought she was great. And uh, I agree. Rudy, I mean, it's pretty obvious, I think, what he was doing. Same when I watched yeah. it, but obviously. Oh, yeah. oh, was, uh, you can give me your number and address. Something he literally said. Yeah. But weird. If that was anything professional related, his people working for him would have handled that stuff. Let's be real. Totally. Um, one last scene I want to shout out just because I thought it was absolutely hilarious and appalling was the uh the baby inside me scene when oh they go to God. the doctor that doctor the fact he like signed off to like ha- allow his image to be used is yeah uh absolutely shocking to me nope. just having a, a dad saying i put a baby inside my daughter right there and just like being like yeah no we gotta leave it like that i mean I, no matter where you kind of stand that's at least a cps call um <sighs> I was dying laughing at it, but then I just like the more I was like, mm-hmm. I think the further you get away from these things, they're funny, but yeah. you're also kind of appalled at the level of yeah uh, humanity and, and idiocy in a lot of these. IndieWire did like a list of all like the scenes and like gags, and they actually reached out to everyone because again, just for the most, just about everybody that you know, it's real people didn't know like. And obviously, there's cameras around, so they're just told something else, and then they later sign off on it anyway. But it's kind of funny to hear what people say about, um, you know, what they thought was happening. And of course, some people cannot be reached. Notably, uh, in the credits for the racist song he sings at the rally, the two guys he was quarantining with are also credited as songwriters. So you wonder if they're actually in on it and like pseudo actors. Or they literally just helped him write the song and press our credit with it, like who's to say? <sighs> Crazy. Check out Borat, uh, Amazon Prime. Um, definitely going to make you laugh a little bit, no matter which side of the aisle. Not. <laughs> Anyways, Dave, what should the people be listening to watching for next week? Ariana Grande and Mando. That's right. Yeah. Mandalorian Season 2, Episode Mando. 1 out on Friday on Disney+. Plus. Ariana Grande. Sixth studio album, fifth, sixth positions, lead single out now. Very excited about that. Also, the return of Sam Smith. Uh, when Sam picked the this date, I don't think they thought uh, Ariana was also dropping this date. Not now committed, so you get them both. Uh, kind of funny how that goes sometimes. Also, we got the end of We Are Who We Are on HBO from Luca, and The Queen's Gambit on Netflix. Ani Taylor Joy, chess drama. Big fan of it. We'll talk about that whole season. It's uh, dominating the Netflix top 10 right now. And I would say for good reason. Shit's good. And uh, maybe maybe we'll talk some, some spooky season stuff. I don't know. Sure. We'll throw it out there. But anyways, uh, at Nostalgia Pod, Twitter, um, YouTube.com slash Nostalgia Pod, SoundCloud.com slash Nostalgia Pod. Uh, have a good week. Yeah.